Good morning, dear listeners. It's Wednesday, July 13th. This is Bierkegaard. The writings of Soren Kierkegaard. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take a pause on Soren Kierkegaard's Purity of Heart. is the one one thing book. And uh, I'm just going to put that on pause like you would a DVD. We'll come back to it. I'm learning a lot from this book. It's complicated. Soren weaves a complicated story and complicated, a complicated carpet. I don't know what to say. He weaves something. Uh, but today we're going to do the uh, quotable, the quotable Kierkegaard, because I think there's some new listeners here. One thing I've been doing is that I belong to, uh, you know, different, uh, different uh, accounts that uh, feature Soren's writings, either on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram. And, you know, when somebody makes a comment or there's a good quote from Soren, I'll throw in that I have a podcast that is trying to faithfully represent Soren's writings. And I don't do it in a, in a way that's awkward. I just say, hey, Soren talks about this. If you're interested, there's a podcast that I'm doing. Uh, on the writings of Soren Kierkegaard, so that seems to generate some interest. Um, some interest. I'm not saying that it's uh, always going to lead to hundreds and hundreds of new people listening, but at least, you know, some people step in and take a listen. So I'm going to do something a little bit different today. The quotable Kierkegaard. This was from the um, the website Philosophy Call. Not a, not every one of these websites, of course, are dedicated to Kierkegaard, but occasionally they'll mention him. And that's when I throw in that I have a podcast. Let me take a sip of coffee here. I think I do need to be sponsored by a coffee company. I will tell you that coffee is one of my most enjoyable things in the world. I like beer. I really do. And I like bacon and I like food and I like travel and I like books. But nah, coffee is pretty much in the inner core. It's something that I have every day. It's something I greatly enjoy. So if you're a coffee roaster... And you want to sponsor a podcast that is uh, Soren Kierkegaard-centric with uh, the full Soren, not the Soren that people know uh, from memes or quotes. Now, I will say Soren is a, is a very quotable uh, writer and thinker, and I think a lot of people get introduced to Soren, if at all, through one of his quotes. Uh, the quotes are kind of like a bait on a hook, maybe. And then they get in the middle of his books and go like, oh man, this dude is dense and he's a Christian and he seems to be awfully uh, complicated and he's very circular and he comes back to the same things and he's not, he's not necessarily like outline oriented. So they start off with a, a, uh, a sampling of Kierkegaard that's very tasty, very profound, not necessarily Christian. You're not going to necessarily know he's a Christian from some of these memes and some of these quotes, but then you get into his books, especially his later books, and you realize that he's very, very passionate about the faith. He talks about it a lot, which may run counter to people's expectations. They don't know that about him. Um, so they get into the deep end, and then all of a sudden Soren's bringing up all kinds of theological issues that I think are even complicated for uh, Christians to get into. He certainly speaks to uh, several issues that the current church is struggling with. And the purity of heart is the will one thing. Is is essentially about idolatry. It's essentially about not allowing God to be God and man trying to find hope or satisfaction or pleasure or purpose outside of God. And he associates uh, the good with God and the purity of heart is the will one thing. 
so that's a hard message. Uh, people don't want to hear that. They want God to be part of their uh, part of the life, but they don't want God to be the one thing, the one person, the one being that they dedicate their uh, hopes and their dreams and their purpose to. So it runs counter to our society. It runs counter to the church. Uh, the church doesn't want that either. Sometimes we want peace and affluence, as uh, Francis Schaeffer said. All I know is I want my coffee. I want my coffee. I was recently uh, watching a video clip online. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the uh, former center for the Los Angeles Lakers. He'd also played for um, the Milwaukee Bucks and uh, was a center, starting center for the UCLA basketball teams back in the 60s. I think it was just the 60s. I don't think it was early 70s. It might have been. Uh, but the guy's been a winner. He's played on championship teams. And, you know, he's tall guy, center, had a sky hook. And he's still uh, still around, still contributing. Very thoughtful individual. Uh, converted to Islam. His uh, non-Islam name was Lou Alcinder. He uh, grew up in New York City. And boy, did he grow up. He's about seven foot one. Uh, but he was on Jimmy Fallon, I think, fairly recently, within the last year or two. And they asked him 10 questions. Jimmy asked him 10 questions. And uh, it was pretty apparent to me, at least, I may be wrong about this, that they had fed him the questions ahead of time and perhaps even wrote the jokes for him. Because even though he nailed the jokes, it was too quick. It was far too quick. It was far too, uh, far too lack of thinking about it and just saying something. And, and uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is a smart guy, uh, so he can do that. But I promised myself I wouldn't do it with these quotes. I wouldn't read these 15 powerful philosophy quotes from Soren Kierkegaard and come up with all this prepackaged answers and pretend like I was being spontaneous. No, I, uh, I read through these once just to see if I knew them at all. And I made a few mental notes in my head, but I didn't want to come up ahead and, and put a lot of answers to this already. I'm really going to read these quotes and try to let them sit on uh, sit on me a bit and then think about how I would respond and do my best with it. And it's going to be raw. It's not going to necessarily be preordained, even though I did read the quotes over. I didn't do a lot of preparation. I want to be spontaneous here. Spontaneous. I have to head to an event this morning at 8 o'clock. It's about 5.20 right now, Eastern Standard Time. It's one of those uh, events for uh, women. There's somebody going to be there... Uh, Selling some pampered chef stuff. Somebody's going to be there with some tastefully simple stuff. And somebody's going to be there with some sensey stuff. Because we are covered. Man. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, teachers that are going to be there. And people I used to work with. So it'll be good to see those people. And I'll probably be one of the few dudes that are there. I offered to bring cigars. I don't know if that's appropriate for 8 o'clock in the morning. But it's going to be a coffee event. And I have no intention of buying pampered chef stuff or tastefully simple and scentsy. That's really kind of a female thing. It was kind of funny. Uh, there was a, another thing that was posted online about how happy men could be with a television set and a lawn chair in their living room. And that's that's a setup for them. And, you know, if that's a woman's house. That's never going to happen. And, you know, women beautify life. I, I don't know what else to say. Like, you know, pampered chef and tastefully simple. I'm not even sure what they sell in Scentsy. I assume that's candles or something. You know, these are things that guys are not interested. Guys are uh, guys are very basic. We're like dogs. You know, pet us, feed us, allow us to uh, enjoy you uh, sexually, uh, give us companionship. And we're pretty happy. 
Yeah, that that's what men require. Um, and maybe sports on television and a six pack or a cup of coffee, as it were. So I'm going to this event at eight o'clock, so I have to hustle through this. So here are the uh, here are the quotes from Soren Kierkegaard. I've heard this one before, of course. Number one, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Uh, I actually put that quote in my book because I think that's a good quote for college kids to think about. It's a tremendous emphasis when you're going to college to think about your career and your future, and try to line it up, line up the stars, and you know find your path. And that's a hard thing to do because <clears throat> uh, even our best plans are are limited. You can be wise about that. Uh, but I would say even with lo- looking backwards, you can't, sometimes you can't even understand things looking backwards. That's, that's the, uh, <laughs> that's the thing that really uh, is tough about this quote that Soren says, life can be only understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Well, Soren, I'm not even sure it can be understood backwards. Sometimes there's things that happen that we don't know rhyme or reason why they happen. I would say one thing is true is if you look back on your life as you get older, in particular, you see patterns. You see how your family life affected you, uh, the mold that you were poured into. You still exert some power upon the mold, but there's tremendous amount of power in forming that is created when people are raised in families, you know, whatever the issues in the family are. I was just reading a chapter of the book uh, from John Eldridge called Resilient. It's a Christian book. And I was a bit poo-pooing the book because the guy tends to be a one-trick pony with the kind of stuff he writes about. That was my characterization of him. But I'm wrong. Uh, it was actually it's actually really, really thoughtful. And there's a lot of stuff about COVID in there and how it's kind of traumatized us and we don't really realize it yet. And uh, he has a good chapter in there about abundance and how maternal love is an example of abundance. And if you don't get it when you're young for various reasons... You can get like physical abundance maybe or some of it, but emotional abundance and psychological abundance uh, that you're going to suffer, like your life is going to be hard and you have a hard time seeing God as being abundant if your mom was emotionally withholding and all those kind of things. So that was pretty interesting. I like that. That was interesting. Thank God for women. You know, I would say some of the greatest pain in my ha- in my life have been associated with women. But some of the greatest healing has also been associated through women. So it's really a weird thing. It's like... Um, give and take type of stuff okay number two there are two ways to be fooled one is to believe what isn't true the other is to refuse to believe what is true uh and i would say that is accurate i'm reading a book uh, right now also the rise and fall of the third reich and uh the uh author i think his name william shirey or something uh, he was a journalist that was actually in in uh, Germany during the rise of Nazism through some of uh, Hitler's reign, the Nazis' reign, and he made a quote. He was quoting a, a, I'm not quoting him, but he made an observation that even the most intelligent Germans fell prey to the propaganda from the Nazis because uh, you're surrounded by it. The Nazis controlled the media from top to bottom. He says, even if you are getting outside sources, and he said, like, I was getting, you know, newspapers from other countries, I was a journalist, I could listen to the BBC, all these kind of things, things that Germans weren't permitted to do. He said he still struggled with not believing the official line from the Nazis because it's all per- pervasive. They, they controlled all the media. It was a very mono-mind type of thing. Uh, so he said the most intelligent people, the most educated people in Germany had bought, had drank the Kool-Aid. 
So they believe things that he knew objectively were not true. And he said he struggled not to believe the things the Nazis were saying. So I think there's a human nature. You might be distrustful, but you can't live in a state of distrust all the time and be sane. It's going, it's going to really hurt you. I mean, I suppose you can do it, but after a while, you want to believe people are being honest. It's very hard to live in a very suspicious manner all the time. All right, number three, the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. I uh, I pray when I get in my car, and I don't drive as much as I used to. Uh, I used to drive thirty about 30 minutes to work back and forth, about 23 miles every day. I did that trip thousands of times in 30 years, and I would pray in my car. And I don't pray as much these days because I don't drive as much. My, uh, my driving really has gone down since I'm not working anymore, and I miss it. I have to figure out a better way to pray because I, I'm not my car enough. But I do, uh, I do uh, still pray in my car. One thing I've learned is after you know after um, after praying is just be silent, keep the radio off, and uh, listen to God. See what God might have to say. And I don't hear His voice audibly, but I try to think about what the scriptures say in regard to what I'm praying about and uh, what the Holy Spirit is speaking, and uh, try to do that. All right, number four, says number three, the function of prayers is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. So we say the, in the Lord's Prayer that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our prayers are to find the will of God and to pray that. Now, there are instances in the Bible where um, where a person prays and God relents or God does something in response to that prayer. I don't know how it all works. Uh, all I can say is I need to pray. Uh, it doesn't seem logical sometimes. I tend to be uh, pretty uh, preordained oriented, but we still have choice and we have to keep these two things in, in, in tension because it's very clear that prayer is effective and it does things, um, but I think it often affects our uh, spiritual lives and manifests in physical reality perhaps, but I don't have it all figured out, so I'm just going to leave it at that. Number four, you become what you understand. You also become what you don't understand, but I think uh, knowledge is super, super important. Now, it's not just mere knowledge. Uh, knowledge has to be personalized. It has to be subjectivized, like Soren would say, is that you need to know what God wants you to do. Or if you're going to understand a subject, you really have to internalize it and you have to practice it. Uh, the best teachers are people that have done things. If, um, if you're a writer, if you like to write poetry and you're published, and you write books, and you're an English teacher, you're going to be a really good English teacher because you actually write for a living. There's a college close by, your college, that has a different model. Most of its professors are not full-time. At least some of them aren't. A good chunk of their professors are not full-time. Uh, they're practitioners, practitioners in the field of whatever they're teaching, so accountants or social workers or psychologists or mechanical engineers. They teach part-time and they work part-time. And they do that to save money because they don't have to pay them as much. So your college is affordable as a private college. It's one of the few private colleges out there that's actually on level with some state colleges to get all these kind of state funding. Uh, but their model is uh, having a lot of part-time instructors. instructors. And, uh, but I think in some ways it's really, really great because they um, these uh, practitioners have a lot of practical knowledge to offer the students because they're in the field if they're police officers they teach a class in criminology uh, my accountant teaches some classes in accounting you know, those kind of things so you become what you understand true enough that's number four 
Uh, again, I didn't read these over too carefully, so I apologize if I'm if I'm shooting uh, some shotguns into the air and missing the ducks here. Number five, it is better to try something and fail than to try nothing and succeed. I agree with that. The results may be the same, but you won't be. We always grow more through defeats than victories. Uh, that is accurate. I would say that some of my hardest lessons were the ones where I really, really screwed up. That didn't make a lot of sense, but you know what I'm saying. The greater the screw-up, the greater ability that has to really affect you. And uh, we learn a lot from it because when we fail, when we really, really fail, um, it's it's an opportunity to really look at our entire our entire being, our operation, and see what went wrong. And it may lead to really, really good things because we failed comprehensively. Maybe we're going to put everything on the table and say, okay, what has to change? How do I need to change? And I went through several of those type of experiences in my professional career where the bottom really fell out. And uh, it felt like I had to just rebuild from, from the very basis, from the, from the headers or the footers or whatever they call them, uh, the footers. The whole house had to be torn down and had to be rebuilt. Uh, one thing I struggled with growing up was being organized. I was bright. Uh, to some degree, but I also struggled with organizational skills, and uh, I really uh, had to develop a system, and my first few years as a school counselor, I was running around like a madman, because I just didn't have any organizational system, and then I read a quote from ATT that said, the system is the solution, and, uh, you know, I started becoming very, very uh, organized, I started carrying around a notepad, this is before computers, and when computers came in, or handhelds, I got a a Palm Pilot, you know, Tungsten or Palm Pilot uh, 105 or whatever it was, and then a Palm Pilot, then a Tungsten. And then I got a phone, so my calendars were on my phone, but I started carrying around a notepad, I started keeping outlines, like I developed an entire, um, like, 40-page outline of all the stuff I did as a school counselor. It was all alphabetized. Um, I kept notes in every meeting with students in a Word document. Uh, but when I retired, I was able to hand to my um, the person that was uh, going to be in my position like 45 pages of all the stuff that I did as a school counselor. You know, the when, where, what, how, timeline, um, to-do steps like the SATs or the 100,000 other things that we had to do. I was able to hand this to her as a copy which made her job a lot easier because she was coming from an elementary school counseling position, which is really, really a different job. Different kids, different age group, different responsibilities. Um, so uh, that was quote number five, is better to try something and fail than try, than try nothing and succeed. It's going to hurt to fail, uh, but there's another word for failure. I'm not the first person that says that. It's called learning. But you have to learn from your failures. You can't just keep on doing the same thing over and over again. It's like somebody who would drive a car and continue to make the same mistake over and over again and keep getting in accidents. You have to get better. You have to learn. Use the accident as a chance to reflect, but you're going to fail. And people that have developed a healthy fe uh, healthy uh, approach towards failure, not a fear of it. I'm going to fear it to some extent regardless. But anybody who has like a healthy uh, perspective on failure, which means, hey, this is new for me. I'm not going to understand it completely. I have to get in the middle of it and try to figure this thing out. Uh, it's going to be a step-by-step -step process. I'm going to make, get some strikes. You know, it's like a baseball, uh, baseball batter sitting in a, or standing in a batter's box. They're going to get some bat on the ball occasionally and strike out occasionally. They're going to, uh, get a hits occasionally, uh, get walked, whatever. Uh, it's going to sometimes be in front of an audience. The failure is always more hurtful when it's in front of other people because we feel our self-esteem is on the line or self-worth or the ability to be ridiculed and all that kind of stuff. 
So that's quote number five. Coming up to quote six, I'm going to probably cut it off today. I'm not going to try to do all these. Um, so stay tuned for quotable Kierkegaard part two. People settle for a level of despair they can tolerate and call it happiness. Uh, yep, yep. Um, yeah, there, you get so used to depression or so used to being down that it seems like it's up. anything else is up to you. I think that's a, a door song or something. I've been down so god blank long that it's starting to look like up to me when you hit the bottom you can only go up uh, but people do settle for a level of despair they can tolerate and call it happiness and i think we have a lot of that going on in our culture uh, i think there are a lot of people that are very unhappy and there are a lot of people who use their frustration on things they can't control to vent their anger about being depressed. I think James Baldwin, the writer, said something. If you don't deal with your sadness, it'll come out as anger. Uh, you know, so you have to heal. You have to, you have to let God come in and, and take care of whatever, whatever is burdening your soul. Uh, so if you don't heal properly, you're going to, you're going to express often that sadness as anger because anger feels safe it feels powerful what sadness makes a person feel vulnerable so that's um that's uh, quote number six people settle settle for a level of despair they can tolerate and call it happiness i'm gonna call it a day on that one i'll post a link to this uh that philosophy uh, uh philosophy call twitter uh post about soren kierkegaard's quotes and we will see you next wednesday